Welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. I know it's been a while. You all may be wondering, where has Troy been? Well, I'm kind of wondering that myself. No, we have um, still in quarantine situation here. So uh, as I've mentioned in the past, getting access to the office where I do interviews with cell phone service uh, has been limited. So I'm still here at the farm where we do not have service. And it's tough for me to do phone interviews when... uh, when all I have is a landline that's kind of scratchy. So um, today we'll be doing another solo discussion. I apologize for being gone for, looks like almost a month when I went back and looked at the details. Um, but um, we are getting back in the swing of things, and I'll detail that at the end of this discussion. So, um, you know, first kind of diving into uh, just some updates. It seems like since it's been forever since I've shared anything, I kind of talk about what's going on here at Red Toolhouse. We have um, our, our uh, copious amounts of rain that, that are coming. I know a lot of the country is dealing with that. In fact, there's some severe flooding in Michigan. Prayers go out to everybody in that area. I know there's now also issues in Virginia. So um, just, just really tough this time of year to have this much rain when we're trying to do so many things on the farm. And I'm currently looking out my window at my pigs, and they have just decimated the section of woodlot pasture they're in just because of all the rain. That's the problem with West Virginia is it's all on the side of a hill. So um, heavy rain and pigs and exposed ground in places can become an issue. So, yes, if it ever dries out, we will move them to a new pasture. Okay, so looking at other updates with uh, with our swine, we have uh, we still have our 15 pigs we got from David Crafton at Six Oak Farms down South uh, Carolina. And those are doing well. We've, uh, we were actually able to acquire a processing date in July and August. We're going to split it up into two groups. And uh, it's exciting to actually be able to get the dates that I wanted. Um, this kind of gets into some of our key discussion here later. But the issue with finding processing times, finding processors that can actually take your, uh, take your livestock at the time that you need them to because of the backlog with the uh, pandemic issues. So um, as far as that goes, they're, they're putting on weight well. They're, they're growing the way I need them to. Um, this is the first year. I haven't detailed this much on the, um, on the podcast. I detail this a lot on our YouTube channel. <clears throat> but uh, we have, we've been fermenting the feed. I've been doing a daily ration where normally when I'm raising out growers, I just have my two-and-a-half-ton feeder, fill it up, They've got access to unlimited feed, but uh, this year trying something new with the uh, daily ration and fermenting the feed first, soaking and fermenting it, and I really like how that's going. Now, granted, right now, if you'd see my feed uh, routine in the morning, it's a little aggravating because uh, it's very, very muddy, and those pigs are very, um, not aggressive toward me, they're aggressive toward the feed trough, so I'm just some dummy in the way with a bucket of feed. (laughs) so it's almost like a uh, it's almost like a reverse bowling alley you know i'm the bowling ball and all the pins are rushing at me uh so it it becomes interesting especially when you're standing in uh, ankle or shin deep mud uh, it kind of makes things tough to get out of the way 
but uh, really excited with how the fermenting and the, the, as far as the feed conversions going are really like now I'll, I'll share all the numbers at the end and compare it to um, a year where we have uh, used unlimited feed I document all this but we'll share that in the future to see just how feed conversion worked out with weight and, and do all the math there but I've noticed that uh, that just the uh, you know a the lack of waste uh, because the the two and a half ton feeder uh, they'd spill it on the ground a lot and really wouldn't take the time to clean it up. With a ration, they're ready to get at it and clean everything up. So I don't have as much waste there. But even even going through the pasture and analyzing manure, it's uh, it's impressive to see uh, the digestibility. It's obvious to see that digestibility is better with the fermented and soaked feed because you just don't see it in their manure. Uh, before you'd see the um, you know, the flakes of corn, you'd see some of the other. Uh, grain components that hadn't been absorbed uh, existing there in the manure. So it just kind of, you know, pass-through system. In fact, the, you know, the chickens would love it. They'd go through and pick out all the stuff out of the manure and spread it around. But uh, not nearly as much as that, hardly any at all. And it's it's funny and not to be gross. Uh, we're all pig farmers, I guess you expect it. But even the, the odor has changed. Uh, the odor is much more what I consider woody, just uh, almost like a, um, a wild wildlife uh, scat or manure versus, you know, the, the pig crap that everyone says smells like, you know, the worst thing in the world. You get that smell on your hands. You can't, you can't get it off your hands. Um, it, it's interesting. Yeah, I see that uh, is, is a dramatic difference to the point that even my wife has noticed. She's like, yeah, it just doesn't stink um, when you get close to a, a pile of manure like it, like it used to. So, Interesting experience there. That's what we've run into. Another project we have going on on the farm right now, and again, it's documented on our on our YouTube channel, is we are building our boar corral, which is a separate area on the farm where we're going to uh, sequester our boars. They can hang out there, do their thing in the woods. They'll have their own paddocks in the woods, be on what I can call the opposite side of the watersheds. You know, we have a small stream coming through a 100-acre valley. So they'll be on one side and, and the gilts slash sows will be on the other. And it, it incorporates this element that I'm calling the boar corral. It'll just be a place, a choke down point where I can um, uh, kind of lock down a, a boar if I need to or bring a gilt in or a sow in to be bred. Just introduce some kind of a, you know, a revolving door into that section of the, of the pasture. But it does involve crossing uh, our main stream in the middle of the property, which to try to keep the bank from being eroded and torn up too badly, um, I built a bridge. So the question will be, will, will the pigs actually cross? Will the boars cross the, the, the pig footbridge or the hoof bridge, as some people keep pointing out to me? So that's being, uh, we're documenting that on our channel. We're working on that right now. Bridge is built. Uh, got our pole set for the corral. Just need to fire up the sawmill and mill some boards to make up the corral wall itself and set the gate. And then we'll be ready to go. Hopefully we'll be moving boards here in the next week or so. Okay, well, um, one other thing before we get on our main topic here, I wanted to share, uh, I, I reached out on one of the Facebook groups for pastured pigs and asked a question about uh, funny stories. Does anybody have any funny stories to share that I could share on the podcast concerning experiences with raising pigs on pasture? And I had several of you respond, and I, I appreciate the response, and I want to share those because uh, I think they're, I think everyone will get a kick out of them if you didn't see them on those groups then uh, we'll share them right here. So the first story, uh, actually, I guess I should start off with my own since this is my idea and, and asking other people to do so, I should uh, lead by example. 
So the story I had, actually, I shared on the group is, is not the story I'm going to share now because something else happened here recently I thought was funny. So um, the the beginning of this isn't funny. The beginning of this is actually tragic. We had uh, a lot of loss with our egg-laying flock. We had I've been letting them free-range a little bit more in a guarded situation, but evidently I wasn't guarded enough. And we had a fox come in and uh, you know, kind of wage war on our, our flock. So I lost about nine chickens in one setting, and then and out of 50, I think I had 55, lost about nine. They were all scattered all over the valley. It took us a couple hours to get them all back together. Um, Fox took away, uh, I could only find, um, I couldn't find one carcass, but the other ones were just dead in the, in the pasture. So they'd killed the fox or foxes, had killed quite a few, but only carried off one. So I had these um, chicken carcasses here. And I thought, well, okay, you know, we're not going to let this go to waste. I'm not going to consume a chicken carcass has been killed by a fox, but uh, this is great protein for the pigs. So uh, nothing goes to waste. Toss them to the pigs. The pigs really enjoyed that. In fact, it was kind of funny um, in a morbid way to watch the pigs running around kind of fighting uh, over over the chicken. One would reach down and grab an entire chicken and then take off, you know, booking it through the woods to try to get away from everybody else. And everybody's following, trying to get, a, get, a, get some action on that chicken. So needless to say, they developed a... A good uh, a good taste for chicken, so I thought, okay, wow, if the, if our live chickens ever get back out in the in the pasture, is this going to be an issue? But in in uh, the last several weeks, they've been integrated, uh, no issues at all. Uh, the, it's like the pigs, if the, if the animal's not dead or not seriously injured, the pig just doesn't pay it any mind, so no big deal there. But what I thought was funny is like, wow, okay, these these pigs probably really appreciated all that fresh protein, and they'd love to have more. Well, like, I came down the other day doing my normal daily routine in our chicken coop is a is a large um, high tunnel slash greenhouse type of thing um, that the chickens are in right now to improve soil. And it sits down in the lowest part of our valley. And we have the hillside where the pigs are on right now to to the one side of the high tunnel. And the hill's pretty steep. It's not one of those deals where if you're West Virginian, you'd say, yeah, it's not too bad. But um, flatlanders would be like, oh, my goodness, that's crazy. Um, but it's one of those situations where if you walk down the hill, you probably want to grab onto a sapling or two to keep from falling on your butt. Uh, so it's got a pretty good slope to it. Well, further up on the side of the hill, the side of the mountain, whatever you want to call it, uh, we have an old log staging area where I've cut logs where we had a place timbered 20 years ago. So there's some old butt logs, some old stumps and things like that. Well, I had, I had uh, in the last four or five years, had cut some white oak. So there's these large white oak butt pieces up there that... Um, you know, just the cutoff ends of logs, maybe two, three feet long. Well, I, I come down that morning and there's one of those butt logs laying right against the chicken coop. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's supposed to be up on the mountain. Where did, where did that come from? And discovered that the pigs uh, had rolled it down the mountain. So, you know, kind of thinking like a um, Wiley Coyote Roadrunner cartoon that the, the pigs are, are rolling boulders <laughs> off, the, off the mountain to try to take out the chicken coop and, and uh, produce flat chicken so they can have some more protein there. So in my twisted sense of humor, that's kind of what I thought. It's like, are they doing that on purpose? Are they trying to roll things off the mountain to uh, to crush the chickens? So anyway, so no, no chickens were injured in that situation, and I obviously got that log out of the way. But I'm watching to see if they do that again. So uh, some other stories that we had, um, I appreciate everyone sharing. Tara Browning had a good story. I, I really appreciate this. This was, this was kind of a... Yeah, an, oh my goodness moment. So I'm, and I'm just going to read it straight out instead of trying to paraphrase. Um, she says, well, we were inseminating our Tamworth guilt, and I got the straw in. 
I break off the top of the bottle and connect it to the straw. I give the first gentle squeeze and then another. The back end blows out all over my face. My husband is appalled at this point, but the job must be completed with what is left. So I go on like piggy pop shot. <laughs> so I go on like a piggy pop shot had not just happened, and I tried to salvage as much as I can for the poor girl. Uh, company gave me back money on that bottle, and she had six, so I guess it could have been worse. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's a lot of story that we could unpack there and probably just be best to leave that alone but yeah that's um as a guy that's done ai that's that's always uh that fear that you have i don't know that i've ever had a, a bag or a tube rupture on me but i've definitely had product on your hand and you're just kind of like yep yeah, that is what that is so thanks for sharing that tara hopefully you don't experience that again anytime soon <laughs> all right and i'm gonna uh, next story is from matt and I'm, matt i'm gonna slaughter your last name and i apologize uh but it's uh um I think it's Matt Sparacio, maybe. And he says, I had a pack of wild dogs chase an entire litter of just weaned piglets, 12 in all. Spent weeks tracking them down in the woods. With the help of neighbors five miles away, I was able to round up nine of the 12. I thought maybe the dogs had gotten three and gave up. Six months later, I'm driving back to the house, and as I pass the handling facility, I notice three red pigs lounging inside. I curse at myself for not possibly securing the gate and go to lock them in before they head off down the driveway. As I'm walking to the handling facility, it occurs to me that I don't have any red pigs left from that litter. They had survived on their own and came back and happened to put themselves in a pen. <laughs> That's pretty good. You get, um, you think you lose three pigs, they go out, they feed themselves, they grow up, they do all that without any inputs and come back uh, ready to go. So that worked out well. Another story from uh, Douglas Downs, who we've had on the podcast before you guys have heard Spoondle Farms. Um, he says, years back, I needed to castrate some piglets. My farm partner wasn't able to make it over anytime soon, so I enlisted the help of two of my paramedic friends for the medical procedure. Unfortunately, I forgot both of these women were going through rough patches in their relationships or breakups and had decided that cutting out testicles would be therapeutic. <laughs> Thankfully, they are professionals with steady hands, but the words spoken toward those poor little boys' piglets regarding their manhood haunts me still. We celebrated with a beer. They thanked me for, for the experience. Uh, stating they felt much better and left. I went and cried in the shower. <laughs> yes, I, I uh, responded to Doug and said, yeah, you should have charged them therapy time, some hourly rate there for uh, for helping them through their, their rough patch. Yes, yeah, so, so fortunately that didn't translate to additional damage to the pigs. And the last story I have is from Sandra McDonald. Uh, McDonald, I'm sorry. I was trying to load a butcher hog to take uh, on his last ride. Only one hog and I don't have a proper chute, but I figured a couple of strategically pace, placed pieces of plywood su would suffice. Of course, he quickly knocked them down and was running free in the barnyard. Enticing with a bucket, trying to hurt him, nothing was working. My old sow was watching all this and stood at the gate to her pen. I figured, what could it hurt? I let her out. She walked over to the trailer and hopped in, quickly followed by the butcher hog. Once he was occupied eating the grain, I'd left in there for him. I closed the gate. The old girl came back to it. I let her out. She walked back to her pen, so I put her away. So there you go. That's a good situation where the um, the old Sal knows the routine and, and led the other sucker into the trailer. So, again, appreciate everybody sharing those stories. If you have any, anyone else has any stories they'd like to share, um, you know, successes, failures, uh, just humorous anecdotes, by all means, just go to our website, redtoolhouse.com. You could go to the Pastured Pig podcast link. 
And there's a form there where you can just uh, type in your comments and or you can just email them directly to me at uh, Troy at RedToolHouse.com. Either way works. And we'll share those in upcoming episodes. So let's get into our main discussion, what I wanted to talk about. And, and my goodness, if there was ever a rabbit trail that you could go down and get lost in the abyss of research, I found myself doing that. I, I, I promised I wasn't going to spend more than an hour or two researching, and that hour or two turned into quite a bit of time because it just, just had me seeking more and more um, answers to questions that popped up. But I'm not going to unpack everything that I uh, discovered because that would be a very long and probably a very tedious podcast, but I want to hit the high points. So the real question, the question for our topic today is, is the Primac going to help pastured pork operations? So thinking about the Prime Act, uh, been in the news quite a bit here recently. You may or may not have seen that come about. So in case you do not have any clue as to what the Prime Act is, let's back up and do a, a quick introduction as to this piece of legislation. So the Prime Act, um, and I'm taking this from a press release uh, from Representative Thomas Massey, Republican of Kentucky, released on 5-23, so May 23rd of 2019, and this is important to note, 2019 is when this press release was put out. Uh, the PRIME is obviously an acronym because you can't be in politics without using acronyms or some other foolishness like that. So it's the Processing Revival, <clears throat> let's try that again, it's the Processing Revival and Intra-State Meat Exemption. Uh, right now, that's H.R. Bill 2859, was introduced in May, uh, May 21st of 2019 under that. Now, Actually, if you go back and look in some of the research and even an interview that I found with Thomas Massey, he claims to have uh, introduced this legislation since 2015 and reintroduces it every year. Now, obviously, the HR uh, number changes. Um, I've, I found some information on the 2017. Uh, when you go to um, congress.gov, you can find uh, find a lot of those details. But uh, so anyway, so there's some, you know, it's important to know that for five years, this has been on the docket and this has been up for discussion, obviously only because of COVID-19 and the issues associated with large meat processing facilities is this really getting some traction right now. So know this, it's it's been out for at least five years in various discussion points. So when I look at the press release, uh, the press release says the Prime Act, H.R. 2859, would give individual states freedom to permit intrastate distribution of custom slaughtered meat, such as beef, pork, or lamb, to consumers, restaurants, hotels, boarding houses, and grocery stores. So that seems pretty vague you know, when you look at that press release and, and how that's explained. So when I went to congress.gov and actually looked up the um, HR 2859, uh, a little more detail here, and we'll get into you know, actual application and, and taking out all the legal government speak here in a second, but so congress.gov says the bill expands the exemption of custom slaughtering of animals from federal inspection requirements. Under current law, the exemption applies if meat is slaughtered for personal, household, guest, and employee use. The bill expands the exemption to include meat that is slaughtered and prepared at custom slaughter facilities in accordance with the laws of the state where the facility is located and prepared exclusively for distribution to household consumers in the state or restaurants, hotels, boarding houses, grocery stores, or other establishments in the state that either prepare meals served directly to consumers or offer meat and food products for sale directly to consumers in the state. 
It also says the bill does not preempt any state law concerning one, the slaughter of animals or the preparation of carcasses, parts thereof, meat and meat food products at a custom slaughter facility, or two, the sale of meat or meat food products. So going back and trying to find the history of this, uh, again, I could not find all five years of introduction uh, on congress.gov because uh, I just didn't know the numbers. But it looks like in 2017, I did see the actions taken, H.R. 2657 in 2015. looks like it died in ag committee, in a subcommittee. Uh, right now, um, the only action that we're seeing on the active bill number is uh, the last entry on congress.gov is 621.19. It was referred to the subcommittee on livestock and foreign agriculture, which is the subcommittee of the agriculture committee. So uh, it sounds like it's obviously still tied up in committee. There's been no action that's been reported on congress.gov. I'm not quite sure actually where it stands right now. So what does all this mean? How do we, how do we take out the, um, the governmental mumbo jumbo here to see how this actually is a rubber meets the road situation? Well, keep in mind, laws vary by state. So you know, I don't know the laws in all 50 states. In this research, I've, I've become a little more familiar with uh, you know, some of the situations. But I'm going to give an example of what it's like here in West Virginia. And for those of you that aren't familiar, West Virginia is a state separate for Virginia. So our laws are different than the state of Virginia. 1863, a lot of things changed there. We became two states. So, yeah, little West Virginia tirade there. <clears throat> so if I, in this situation, um, if when I look at my own operation, again, we are a small operation. Uh, you know, I've raised 25 hogs in one year at most. So we are, we are a small operation. I have a very small customer base, um, but... Uh, that's kind of how I, I, I want to operate. So what are, what's, what are the options available for me in West Virginia? Well, if I want to sell my pork as whole or half hogs, then here's kind of currently technically how I do it with a custom processor. And a custom processor is kind of the, uh, it would be safe to say a custom processor most of the time is the small guy. Custom is, is kind of the key word there, that your custom means you you, you meet some, you can meet a lot of these exemptions that, uh, that already exist. So if I'm selling, uh, you know, technically this is how I'm actually supposed to promote it to my customers if they're buying whole and half hogs, to a, if I'm going to just a custom facility. I'm actually selling the live animal to my customer and I'm agreeing to deliver it to the processor or I can say, hey, you, know, you guys come get it, you deliver it. You know, not too many of my customers are going to have the means to come pick up a pig and take it to uh, a processor. So I can agree to deliver. I can decide to charge for a delivery fee. I can include that in the cost of the pig. And I can even help them navigate the instructions on how to process the animal. So if I want to help facilitate through a cut sheet to say, hey, this is what this means from the processor when he's asking you, do you want um, you know, bone-in chops or boneless chops, blah, blah, blah. You know, this answer, helps answer the questions that I get. <laughs> got one time. A guy says, I want a pig and I want it to be all bacon. Yeah, well, wouldn't that be nice? I'd be a millionaire if I had an all bacon pig. But anyway, so you can help. I can help navigate the instructions on how to process that animal. They are responsible for picking up the meat and paying the processor. And there's some gray area here as to whether I can offer to pick it up on their behalf and pay on their behalf. The pay, not that much of an issue. Like I can... I can take money and pay the processor and say, here's processor uh, fees for customer A, B, and C, and they'll just pay me back. But agreeing to pick it up or help them pick it up, that's kind of where the gray area is because it's that's where the issue comes in is 
who is handling the meat after it leaves the processor. If it's the customer that picks it up, they're getting that meat and they're taking it straight home. So they're responsible for it as soon as it leaves the processor's hands and goes into their hands. If I become a middleman and the processor hands that meat to me, and I turn around and drive somewhere and give it to the customer, then okay, you still may still be okay. But if I take that home, put it in my walk-in freezer, and then say, hey, you know, come get this whenever you want, or hey, you can come get half of it, and I'll save the other half for later if you don't have the freezer space, you know, obviously at a, at a premium price, you know, that's where that becomes an issue because I'm putting it on farm and, and, and not... Um, you know, I, I'm holding it. So there's some gray area there. Some of you guys may have gotten into that in more detail. To be honest with you, I've I've not offered those services um, as far as storing the meat back when it's holes and halves. Now I have delivered to my customers to keep them from having to drive to the processor. So this is you know this is the typical meat that you see. As you guys know, obviously I'm kind of preaching to the choir here that this is the not for sale labeling that you get from a custom processor. So it's it's packaged to be obvious that this is not for resale. So in West Virginia, I have 20 of these uh, processing facilities as an option. We're a state of about 1.8 million people, so I've got 20 options in the state. But in our situation, our state is kind of laid out weird because of all the mountains and because of the odd shape of it. Uh, there's some portions of the state that can take me almost four hours to get to. Uh, so uh, out of those 20, not all of those are logical options. So <clears throat> the next step would be in West Virginia if I want to sell cuts. So instead of just selling holes and halves, I want to also bring back some pork, put it in my freezers, and sell them as individual cuts, which is what I do. I usually sell, usually I'm about 40 50%, 60%. Uh, holes and halves, and the rest go to what I consider commercial individual cuts. So in that situation, those in West Virginia, because it's West Virginia, we have the state-inspected opportunity. So I can take my pig to a state-inspected facility, and they can process that pig. They can do the holes and halves if we want and package it for custom, or I can ask them to package it in a commercial packaging, which would include weights, uh, would include uh, you know, a nice little label that gives details of, uh, of, of the pork and give, can give the weight, and I can even give them a per pound price if I wanted to, and they could go ahead and drop the price on it. They do all that for me. Um, that is allowed because they're state inspected. They can do that, so I can take that pork back, stick it in my freezer, and sell it to my customers. Uh, there, there is a little caveat, a little asterisk there, that when if I want natural smoking, um, so I want my bacons, my hams, my jowls, anything like that naturally smoked. That requires an extra level of inspection and extra equipment that the um, processor has to purchase. So some of those state inspected facilities won't do that. They, they don't have that extra investment of equipment and, and, uh, and certifications. So they just say, hey, we're not going to package any of your smoke products for resale, which is kind of odd. You know, you think about it. If I take a commercial pig in there, and say, hey, would you process this pig? I say, yeah, we'll do all this for commercial sales, except your bacon and your ham and your jowls. Well, okay, that's you know, a lot of people. A lot of people like bacon, so it's kind of tough to not have that option. So there's there's things you have to consider there when it when it comes time to figuring out a, a workaround. Uh, this meat in a state inspected facility cannot leave the state. So if I would decide, uh, like I actually had a customer reach out to me that moved to Ohio, moved to Columbus, and say, hey man, I'd love to get some of your product again. Next time you process, how can I do that? Well, I can't ship it to you in Ohio. That would be illegal because it's going to cross a state line.
But if you came down and you met me on the southern side of the Ohio River in West Virginia, I could load you up. You could buy all the pork you want, and then it's your responsibility whether you take it across the state line. You know, it's not my responsibility what you do with it. I'm not held uh, liable for, for crossing the state line because the customer crossed it. So uh, I haven't run into that, so feel free to shoot holes in that if you guys feel that's uh, incorrect, but that's, uh, that's my understanding, and that's how I've been instructed locally here. So, so it can't cross the state line. So when I look at state-inspected facilities, I have 15 in the entire state of West Virginia. There's really only two that I consider local driving distance that makes sense to me, and by local, that's an hour to an hour and a half. Um, not as much a distance as much as it is winding roads and uh, obviously a truck with a livestock trailer. So two that I would consider as an option. So here, if I want to go full full bore, pardon the pun, if I want to go whole hog in, in what I sell and I want to sell my meat online or I want to be able to sell it across uh, the state line in Ohio and Kentucky or you know, somebody says, hey, man, I, can you ship me a bunch of pork to Florida? If I want to do that, then it has to go to a USDA facility. And... That is obviously federally inspected. A USDA facility has a full-time federal employee on staff that is doing these inspections. And obviously there's a lot of expense with keeping that federal employee uh, employed. You know, he's, he's there whether he needs, he's got all the work or not. It's not like you can furlough him and say, hey, we don't have the work right now. But um, So the USDA facility is a huge expense, a lot of investment equipment, a lot of investment of time and overhead. Um, right now, I was, I was doing my research on this, right now it looks like I may only have two in the state that are actually open where I could say, hey, can I bring you my farm animals? When you look at the actual registration of certificates uh, on the USDA's uh, information sheet, that there's, a, there's more, but they're just private facilities. They raise their own animals, they do all their butchering, processing, all that, so they don't take any uh, off-farm product. So it's kind of tough to really see exactly the number that I have. In our area, there was one that was considered what I would consider local, and I've used in the past. Um, there's been issues with that. But actually, they just recently lost their USDA inspection. In fact, they even lost their state inspection, so they went back two notches. They're just now a custom processor. And when I called them and, and, and the individual said, yeah, we, we don't have that anymore, I said, well, how come? And they said, well, we lost our inspection due to having to shoot an animal twice. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to leave that there. We're, we're not, I really don't want to get into that conversation any deeper. So, so it's interesting, and, and I'm sure there's more to it than just that, but um, that facility is no longer USDA. So, bang, my only local option for USDA is gone. So right now, I, I would pretty much, it would make sense for me to drive out of state to southern Ohio or western Kentucky or eastern Kentucky to, uh, to make sense um, for me to have something USDA processed. Not in a big hurry to do that, that's for sure. So um, when you look at that, uh, when you look at that kind of uh, that setup, you know, so there's kind of three levels here in West Virginia. You got your custom, you got your state inspected, and then you got your USDA. Now, according to the National Pork Producers Council, there's only 27 states like West Virginia, or totally 27 states including West Virginia, that have state inspection. So that means obviously there's 23 states that have to either go to a USDA facility or go to custom. So if they want to sell cuts, they want to sell to uh, grocery stores, they want to sell to restaurants, those type of things, they have to go USDA. Uh, custom is not going to be an option for them, so they really only have two choices. So what the Prime Act is going to allow, or would allow, 
It would allow the states to allow custom meat processors, again, the small guys, to package for resale to individual customers, uh, consumers, or grocery or restaurants as long as it does not cross the state line. So there, it gives the states the ability to kind of supersede um, federal USDA uh, regulations to say, hey, you guys can allow this to happen if you want, that they, um, a, a custom processor can now package and resell locally. So you think about, so what are the ramifications of this if this would happen? And obviously it's not as simple as this is an on switch or an off switch. As you know, anything government's going to get watered down and muddied like crazy and have all kinds of issues. But if you look at the, just the, the logistics of this, this should, should in, its, in its perfect sense, should drastically open more options for protein farmers. So we producers of pastured pork um, as long as we want to keep our food regional, which a lot of us that kind of fall into the sustainable market, um, slow food, whatever you want to call it, we kind of like hanging out in the uh, in the regional aspect. Now we know, you know producers, large producers like Joel Salatin, the other starting to shift their product, all those type of things. Uh, and that's that's a whole other discussion. But uh, a large amount of us you know, really want to kind of stay in that regional area. Now, unfortunately, some of us that sit on the edge of a state state line. Uh, you're in a major metro area, and, and it, uh, you know, like um, I think of Cincinnati or or Louisville, where you've got these um, these major metro areas that sit right on the state border. You know, that obviously becomes an issue because you can't you can't cross cross there. But this should really open up a lot more options for us. So I could go back to my West Virginia example, where I have 20 custom processors in the, in in the state, uh, probably six of which. I would consider local and say, wow, now I can do what I do already with two options. I now have six options or now a total of eight options in that situation. So it allows me to, to spread that out. Obviously, it allows those processors to value add their services. Uh, they can obviously charge more. I, I pay more for a custom or for a commercial packaging than I do a, a commercial process. So they can value add their services. And, uh, you know, obviously they have to add more uh, equipment, more overhead, but that would allow, allow them to value add their services and allow us as farmers to have more options. So it, it sounds pretty cut and dry. It's like, okay, that's kind of a no-brainer. What, what is the issue here? Who would be opposed to this? Well, interestingly enough, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that the opposition uh, would be a follow-the-money type situation. So if this allows the small guy to be able to provide more services, maybe reach more customers, be able to value add their services, who is going to be opposed to that? Well, it's obviously gonna be opposed by the people that are losing that business. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a trade-off. The, the larger producers, the USDA guys, are gonna be like, well, wait a minute, you know, we're gonna lose some of our market share to these small guys that we really haven't given a second thought because they're not gonna spend the money, they can't afford to get into the game at this level. So, um, you know, regulation won't allow them to do all this stuff. So now, if that tears down that wall, uh, then there's market share that could be pulled back to the smaller producers. So the big boys would stand a chance of losing the most money. And it's interesting. So when you look about that, if you research the Prime Act, and, and I'm going to provide links to in the um, show notes for everything that we're discussing here. But if you look at, so I went to the, the uh, NPPC, the National Pork Producers Council's website, who represent the big boys. Um, I just went to their website and they actually have a full page dedicated to the Prime Act. And I want to read three 
key points that they make on their website page about this. So their first question they ask is, why does the Prime Act matter to our, our producers? And they respond by saying, a robust, consistent U.S. meat inspection system is critical to ensuring food safety, maintaining consumer confidence, and safeguarding animal health. Currently, this is achieved by requiring that FSIS, or fully equivalent state program, provide ante and post-mortem inspection of all meat products produced and sold commercially in the United States. The Prime Act would allow states to modify their laws to allow for the intrastate sale of non-inspected meat products. So that's the why it matters. So the, they go on to say, what is the NPPC's position? NPPC is opposed to the Prime Act because it would allow for the commercial sale of non-inspected meat products. USDA's FSIS, or Fully Equivalent State Inspection Systems, are essential partners along with producers, packers, and processors in delivering safe meat products that consumers can enjoy with confidence. Federal and state inspection programs also are a key component in protecting animal health by ensuring that every animal offered for commercial slaughter is inspected for signs of disease, in particular foreign animal diseases that pose a significant threat to the viability of American culture. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, there's really, really no surprise here when you think about this uh, from the from the MPPC. I mean, these these guys represent the large processing and packing facilities. Uh, so there's definitely a, you, they claim that this is an issue of food safety. Um, again, we could we could get very heated in a discussion of um, are those huge conglomerate uh, processing facilities really the safest option? You know, do they have the track record of producing all this safe food that they claim? Again, you could say volume compared to small producers would, would be the difference there, but uh, yeah, definitely up for some discussion and debate on that. So it's one of those things where um, if you allow the point of entry to be lower and cheaper, then that will bring in way too much competition. But competition is good, right? I mean, everybody likes competition except for the guys that are competing, especially if they've had the lion's share of the market and now they have to do more to try to uh, keep that market share or even regain it. So um, yeah, it's interesting to see that from that perspective. So I, one other rabbit trail I went down, and, and I'm going to provide a link to this. It's a very long uh, article because it's a transcript from a radio program. But there was an interview with Thomas Massey, who, if you remember back at the beginning of this, that's the representative from Kentucky that's actually introducing this legislation. He's co-sponsoring it. Uh, another uh, um, representative from Maine. I uh, can't remember her name, but anyway. Uh, so Thomas was interviewed by, uh, Representative Massey was interviewed by Bob Zadek, who's an AM radio host. And he has a really neat discussion about the Prime Act, but he goes into a lot of other things that kind of t show how the lobby power is strong against this legislation. It even talks about how the lobby works and even how our failed political system. i got to watch here. I, I don't want to become uh, this is a, a Pastor Pig podcast, not a political site, but um, that he, he really pulls back the uh, blanket and, and reveals even how these committee systems work, how you get on a subcommittee, how you're able to move one way or the other because of playing the game or not playing the game. So it's very interesting. If you want to if you want to get frustrated, then uh, read that article and, and get into it. I'll, I'll again provide a link. 
So um, he, he talks about how the lobby power is extremely strong against this legislation. You know, the, the organizations like the NPPC and, and other big producers, uh, meatpacking processors, all those guys, I mean, they've got tons and tons of money to, to give lobbyists to throw at this, to say, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't good. This is going to make things worse. This is going to uh, reduce safety. This is going to cause illnesses all over the country because uh, anybody's able to go out and process animals. So it's, it's interesting to see that. So the, I guess the other shoe that drops or the other question in all this is, is the Prime Act enough? So is any piece of legislation, I don't know that there's ever anything that we consider perfect lawmaking because we're all imperfect people and we're trying to, trying to govern uh, each other and we all have our own opinions. So uh, is there any opposition from, from what we consider our side, what we consider uh, small producers or sustainable producers that would say, no, you need the, the Prime Act isn't enough. Uh, it needs to be rejected because it's not, not because it's going to hurt the big boys. It needs to be rejected because it's not doing enough. And unfortunately, you see a lot of that in any legislation that uh, we get hung up. Um, what is the old saying? Don't let uh, perfection be the enemy of good. So, um, so the question is, is it enough? Some say the Prime Act doesn't go far enough. And I'm going to share a link to a blog post by Mike Calicrate. And I'm going to apologize because I haven't, this is where my research falls. I don't know if Mike and Greg Gunthrop are business partners or uh, Mike's just a news guy. And, but on this article, he has a picture of he and Greg at the top and uh, on Greg's farm and you know they're, they're shaking hands they're, they're kind of buddied up there so I, I don't know if they're in business together or if Mike's just there reporting um, his blog article doesn't quote Greg he doesn't um, write in the first person in Greg's perspective so I, I can't say that Greg's even involved in this other than the fact that there's a picture of him on this blog post which I thought was interesting so uh, you know no references cited there so um if you go to that uh, blog post, check it out, but know that I'm, I'm not saying that Greg Gunthrop is either agreeing with this or disagreeing with that because there's no evidence in that blog post. But Mike writes that uh, he thinks the Prime Act is not enough, that it doesn't go far enough. And so he goes through his article and lists uh, some key points, and I'll just bullet point these again. If you want to get the details, you can dive into it. He says, you know, one of the first issues is the access to labor. Can small producers find the labor needed? And the amount of labor needed for a small producer percentage-wise is greater than these larger producers because there's not as much automation. So to move this, you know, a similar number of head of animals through a processing facility that's a smaller facility with less automation is obviously going to require more people. So is there access to labor? So that opens the door of where are we finding this labor? Is this is this foreign labor? Is this you know, issues that we hear about with Smithfield, with all these other places that are that are, that are having labor practices when it comes to um, illegal immigration or foreign labor and are extending work visas, all that kind of stuff. Whole nother discussion there. Second point, uh, many states will not change. Uh, they will not recognize the option. It, this is a state's rights bill, basically. This is what uh, Representative Massey points out, that would give the states the ability to choose. So for the 27 states that already have state inspection, they can say, well, we already have state inspection in place. We really don't need this. We really don't want to open the door to these custom guys. So yeah, my state may just be like, yeah, whatever. Um, but you know, maybe these 23 other states that don't have it will look at it. Or these 23 other states that don't have state inspection, they may not have state inspection simply because the big boys lobby has already taken care of that in the first place. So 
So it really could be just a, this is a half measure because it's not a, a sweeping 50 state legislation. Um, he points out that this also doesn't address the failed inspection process. And again, we could spend an entire podcast or two just discussing the entire process of inspection, how it's failed, how they're missing some key points, and, and how they're, um, you know, I guess the adage would be they're uh, swallowing a camel and gagging on a gnat when it comes to key inspection elements. His fourth point uh, doesn't address the truth in labeling or country of origin. Which, you know, which is huge. My goodness, uh, think about truth and labeling when it comes to even the, using the word organic. Uh, you know, when I think of, I always think of chicken eggs when we talk about this subject is you know, cage-free, you know, free-range, organic, non-GMO, all of these type of things that come in. What's the truth in labeling? Uh, there's so many issues. There's so much fraud in that right now. And of course, when you look at cool, a, a country of origin labeling, you know, that has been an issue, I believe, what, 2014, 2015, lobbyists were able to get that removed from meat. You know, you can't buy any product right now, a, a shirt, a phone, a, a shoe, without knowing where it was manufactured and produced. You know, you turn it over, it says made in China. That's what everything is now. Um, but if, if when you look at meat, it doesn't have to be a country of origin. Everything else in every other consumer product has to have country of origin, but meat does not because of legislation in the last, what's it been, the last six, seven years that's allowed that to be removed. Now, granted, I'm hoping that comes back up again because of COVID and issues with, uh, with this, that it brings this back to people's attention. But uh, I agree that yeah, this, is, this is something we need to stand on, that country of origin labeling needs to be addressed and it needs to be truthful. This isn't a well, this animal is processed in the U.S., but it was raised ex elsewhere, or it was raised in the U.S., shipped out of country to be processed and then brought back, which, um, you know, which is obviously happening right now. So those are some big issues there as well. And then the fifth point he makes is that state line barriers must be removed. That, uh, again, this is a half measure that until uh, regional food systems are allowed to operate regardless of state lines, and then this is just a half measure. Uh, had some other. Uh, he had offered some uh, solutions in the article as well. Uh, I believe there's either some other legislation that they're uh, addressing that says this may be a better option. Uh, but feel free to read that article for more information uh, as far as that legislation goes. And there's one thing that jumped out at me that I, I thought was interesting, and it would be a whole other discussion. I'd love to talk to veterinarians. But was the idea of adding meat inspection certifications to veterinarians. So we're not talking about like your dog and cat vet in town. We're talking about a rural large animal vets that, um, you know, A, their work is finite. B, they cover a lot of ground. So uh, profitability is, is always a concern when it comes to less density. Like, you know, I don't have a large uh, animal vet in my area that, um, that's, that I consider local. Anybody I call is going to have to come from another county, maybe even, you know, an hour or two away. So would this open the door if you said, okay, veterinarians can now do local inspection. They could even incorporate that into veterinarian school that you have a certification or a line of, of class credits that say, okay, this is the inspect meat inspection path. So not only could you come out and, and uh, you know, serve my swine or my cattle to, uh, to treat them medically, but you could also uh, step over to the local processor and say, oh, yeah, that's Troy's uh, cow. I just, uh, you know, I just looked at that a couple weeks ago, and oh, you're processing it now. Okay, let's inspect that. There's some logic to that. That that would make sense. Now, I'd be curious to see if the veterinarians would want to be involved at that point. 
But um, yeah, that could really help rebuild the local regional food systems. I, I like that idea, um, but I'm sure as with anything, there's some pros and cons to it. So uh, a lot of information I've just dumped on you here. That's one, my goodness, 47 minutes in, I'm just uh, basically thrown up all this stuff on you as far as the Prime Act goes. Um, obviously, Representative Massey is emphatic about the support for this and, and calls all small farmers to reach out to their local re to their state representatives and and ask them to support this bill to get it out of committee. Um, I, yeah, I'm still torn. There's there's a lot of things I like about it, and there's some things that that I agree with uh, that, with Mike on this. That hey, could we could we look at maybe adding this or doing that? But again, is this one of those situations where don't let perfect get in the way of good? So I'd love to hear your guys' comments. Again, the very nature of podcast is kind of a one-way street. But feel free to comment. You can uh, send a comment to me, Troy, at redtwouse.com. You can go to the website um, to use the form. But uh, share your thoughts with me, what you think, and I'll share them in um, you know, kind of a follow-up excerpt of a new podcast so we can discuss that. All right, well, um, I'm going to wrap a bow on this podcast. We're going to tie it up here. So um, as far as... Getting back into the interview structure, I'm, I'm now starting to reschedule interviews. So we're, we're going to be in a situation where I can get back out to get into cell phone service on a regular basis with my equipment. Obviously, it's not like I haven't been in cell phone service the last two months, but allow me to get back in a situation where I can easily have my equipment accessible and make it logical to schedule interviews. So uh, I've got some that I'm trying to nail down. If there's anyone that, um, that has reached out to me and I have not responded to you in an email or a phone call, then it means it's slipped through the cracks, and I apologize. Um, it doesn't mean that I've said, no, I don't want to talk to you because I don't think you're worth coming on the podcast. So if you're one of those people, I apologize. B, please reach out to me, and I will make sure that I respond and get you on the schedule. Again, would love to hear what people are, are doing right now. In fact, it, we may even go back and interview some people we've already done just so we can talk about this current situation to see how it's affecting producers. Well, I hope everyone is having a good week. I hope even though if your pasture is like mine, it's full of water, you're getting out in the pasture and spending some quality time. All right, I pray everyone have a great week. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.